Well, hey there, freaks. It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce this week's sponsor before our incredible discussion with Paranoid Bull. This week's episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by the Cash App. You freaks already know all about them. They're helping you stack sats. They're helping you save money with their boost program. And their number one finance app in the App Store for the last two years. On their Bitcoin side, they've been opening it up. Uh, their functionalities up recently. Uh, they're BEC32 compatible. That rollout's happening now, slowly but surely for users. There's a couple users tweet at me that they were able to send to Wasabi. So they're getting BEC32 compatible. Deposits are enabled for everybody uh, on the Cash App. You can send Bitcoin from your personal wallet to the Cash App if you so please. And then on top of that, um, we've got a, a promo code, Stacking Sats. If you freaks download the Cash App using the promo code Stacking Sats, you're going to get $5 free. And then we're going to get $5 to a program very near and dear to my heart. That's Al's Lacrosse in Chicago. It's helping the inner city youth there uh, via the sport of lacrosse. Um, so yeah, go to your local app store, download the Cash App today, tell your friends, tell your family, tell anybody that's interested in Bitcoin and then payments apps uh, to download the Cash App and use the code StackingSats, one word, StackingSats. Get that $5 and give $5 to Al. Owls, excuse me. Um, hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Paranoid Bull. I know I certainly did. A man who uh, has thought a lot about systemic and political risk. Very thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I think you will too. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty here. Back in the studio, uh, the home studio, back on the home home field, sitting down with somebody I'm extremely excited to talk about, talk about, talk with, excuse me, because I've been following him on Twitter for years now. Uh, you freaks may uh, have seen me retweet him. If you follow me on Twitter, I'd like to introduce you to D-A-L, a.k.a. Paranoid Bull. Welcome to the podcast. It is great to be here and uh, nice to meet you in person. No, it's... Uh, been a very great pleasure speaking for the last 15 minutes here. Uh, I'm very excited for the conversation we're about to have. Um, I guess here we'll start. So we were talking earlier, you're touching, you've been in New York since 2001, you said? Yeah, on and off. You on know, I off. first I first came um, actually as an intern in 2000 during the dot-com bubble. And uh, then after graduating from undergrad in 01, I moved and lived right across from the uh, World Trade Center. Uh, which is now Battery Park City. At the time, it was just a couple buildings. Um, so I actually lived kind of within distance of feeling the impact on 9-11 um, from the uh, the planes hitting the towers. That was a really intense, painful, not um, not good experience. But I, I've had, you know, some really, really great experiences being in New York on and off since then. I did spend a couple years in L.A., which was amazing. And then I uh, spent a few years up in Boston doing grad school, um, in, you know, kind of during that time frame as well, and have been back full time for a decade now. Damn. Yeah. Damn. Time. Decade. I'm putting. I'm about to get them up on half a decade in New York, and I feel like it's aged me <laughs> quite a few decades at this point. Congratulations. <laughs> it's funny, man. I don't know if I should get a congrats or what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Um, but in 2015, you started. Was it 2015? You started Odin River. I did. Yeah. So I, I'd kind of, um, you know, been. You know, in in various different ways, kind of in the legacy Wall Street world since the beginning of my career, I started out in investment banking, you know, actually doing tech M&A during the 
bubble and then quickly kind of shifting gears to doing other M&A stuff. And then um, kind of since early 2000s, been doing various things related to the quote unquote buy side of legacy finance, um, private equity and hedge funds and, and kind of worked. Um, last cycle, I, you know, I was, I was doing my JD and my MBA at, at Harvard. I started my first blog called Paranoid Bull, which is now exclusively a Twitter account because who blogs? <laughs> I think people still blog, but um, so, yeah, so I, I kind of, you know, was was working and actually worked for the guy who did the subprime trade. This guy named John Paulson, like, you mm-hmm. know, um, big short guy uh, uh, for a while. But I, I, you know, on the way up this cycle, I became very um, convinced that progress is inevitable. I developed this philosophy um, and the philosophy is kind of the opposite of paranoid bull, meaning paranoid bull is based on the idea that cycles matter, but in the long run, things will be good. Um, Odin River is the opposite. Odin River is based on this philosophy that progress is inevitable, but cycles matter. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, so, so I've kind of like leaned into the latter part of that, um, you know, the last year or so. On, on the paranoid bull Twitter handle, but yes, the short answer is I, I kind of, I founded Odin river 2015, 2016 timeframe. And, um, you know, I've been spending most of my time living the philosophy of Odin river the last few years. So it's a bit of a yin and a yang, very optimistic, yet very, uh, pessimistic about the short term effects of the cycle. That, that's right. I mean, in a way, so I'd say I, I, for people who know the term, I'm a definitive optimist. Um, I have faith in progress and I choose these words intentionally I have so much faith in progress that I think the legacy system must collapse not even might but must and I think that what we've witnessed in the last few years this cycle is kind of the culmination of what what I think is going to be a systemic risk type event um, series of events in in you know, in, in the kind of way that the legacy system collapses. Um, and, you know, so that's, I guess, in the short run, quote unquote, pessimistic, like I'm pessimistic about the prices of things. I'm pessimistic about, you know, certain aspects of the legacy system, um, financial system, political system. But I'm massively optimistic, you know, about what will emerge on the other side. Uh, I would agree. I'm as well. And let's dive into sort of all the risks. So you tweet out a lot, systemic risks exist, political risks exist, and we were talking about uh, the uh, interaction of the new digital age with the legacy system, and that's a huge theme on this podcast is the fact that we were born at this inflection point and our monkey brains are trying to sort of discern what's going on with all the technological changes going on. The chase, excuse me, the pace of change is, is quicker than it's ever been at any point in human history. And us as a species just trying to adapt to that. And and like you just described, there's a legacy system sort of holding us back, uh, a world full of anachronisms, if you will. Um, And and we sort of need uh, that to collapse before we can move forward. So let's get into the the political and systemic risks that exist today. Um, Because, yeah, that's another topic. Like everything's disconnected from reality, from the CPI to to justice, to, to, to 
things like the Jeffrey Epstein case that's going on right now and uh, how much injustice was served years ago when he did his original sentence um, and stuff like that. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I think that let me let me kind of let me lay out a framework and then, you know, glad to dive in to any and all aspects of it um, just as a way to frame um, frame the dialogue. So I think that, you know, one, one of the one of the facts about history and, you know, kind of there's there's two ways of thinking about this and I'll, I'll describe both. Um, there are factually speaking and and one of the most important books i think i've ever read is hegel's lectures on the philosophy of history really important book you know he traced up until that point in time the 1850s the fact that that many civilizations have risen and fallen so there's been a history of political cycles going back in time forever and you know the rise and fall of of political societies often you know there's often violence that, that happens is often kind of a lot of loss that comes from it. But over time we've progressed in a, in a, in a really good way. Um, you know, and I think, you know, post-World War II America is, is the best, I, you know, I think it's just a fact, um, you know, country in the, in the history of civilization. It, but as you said, today we have a lot of, of, of negative things um, going on. And even, even Martin Luther King, the day before he, died was assassinated he has this great speech where he talked about um the mountaintop he, he'd been to the mountaintop and he knew that we would reach the promised land it was a very optimistic speech even though he knew his his life uh, was in danger and he said in that speech that he if he even though he was literally marching about how horrible civil rights were right at the time he's literally in a, in a hot room in the south his life's in danger he gets killed the next day he said if he could choose to be born anywhere and history he would be born in that room you know in that time in this country so this the history of civilization is such that we have rises and falls but but things kind of move in a direction so progress is, is inevitable it takes time it takes it takes cycles politically but the other kind of like really important set of cycles at least you know important in the sense that it impacts most people's lives and that we have this this thing we call money which is really like the the representation of all of our energy and time here on, on earth and, and we kind of put all of the effort and, and, and energy that we have um, into the world and in the, in, in, in the world hopefully gives us back this thing that we call money. The money is part of a system, the financial system, and the financial system has very clear cycles. It's just a fact. It's not even really that controversial. Um, you can look at, you know, equity markets, credit markets, and, and, and so the way that cycles work in financial markets is primarily through credit cycles. And so when we look at risk, whether it's credit risk, political risk, um, you know, individual company risk, one of the important, I, I think, important dimensions for kind of framing that is to think about, okay, well, how does that materialize in the financial markets? And specifically, you know, wh why do these cycles happen? H how is it the case that they keep happening? And, you know, kind of how does that impact the way we look at the world today? And I think it's just a fact. Like, if we look at just the last few years, like, even since, you know, since not, not to be 
egocentric, but but you know, kind of my time here in New York. I arrived at the dot com bubble, boom, collapse. Two thousand eight, massive collapse, and here we are again. Um, you know, two thousand nineteen. It's it's truly insane that they've been able to you know extend the cycle so long. But by by any metric, you know, the prices of things are higher than they've ever been. When you look at you know equity markets, uh, credit credit markets are obscene. We've got more than ten trillion, like thirteen trillion dollars of negatively yielding credit, which is literally insane it should not exist right it's literally a contract to lose money that is what negative yielding bonds are because all a bond is 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 a contract a piece of paper that says hey here's some money like give me some interest instead you're signing a piece of paper that says here i will lose money (laughs) like take my money it's crazy it it shouldn't exist right what's the german uh tenure at right now isn't like this is negative negative 120 bips or something you know i don't i don't i didn't look at it this morning i should have you know but it's 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 negative past 10 years in Germany. Um, you know, it's probably near 1%. It's probably 70. I, I don't know the exact number, but it's negative something that it shouldn't be. Um, and, you know, the, the fact that, you know, Italian two-year government debt has been negative is totally insane. Um, so it's like we're, we're you know, but, but we've seen this before, right? We've seen this before. And, and even going back to prior to, you know, our time, like, you know, there was a savings and loan crisis and, you know, in the, in the 80s and 90s, there was other cycles. And so so risk has been mispriced consistently um, at, at the peak of, of cycles. And, and you know, and, and so we're, we're kind of in that dynamic again. The reason why political risk is so important this cycle is that so in, in every cycle, in, or, in order for there to be a market collapse or, or a systemic risk to emerge, there has to be something that's totally obvious that people are staring at. And in retrospect, people are like, wait, how is that possible that we didn't like pay attention to that thing, right? So in, in dot com, the dot com time, it's like, it's crazy to think, like, how is pets.com, this shitty website, right? Like worth billion dollars. Like how, how are these websites worth what they were? We knew it, at the time it even seemed absurd, but now in, in retrospect, it looks insane. In 2008, housing prices were already in free fall. Like it was not even like like subprime, like the subprime cycle had, had started to turn like 06. Housing pieces peaked in 06. By 07, it was clear, right? You had bankruptcy. You had like stuff happening. Um, Bear Stearns having issues, you know, countrywide, like a number of these um, subprime lenders going under. You had, you had a number of issues, yet you had, you know, Chairman Bernanke saying things like subprime is contained. Mm-hmm. Right. The uh, I think he said the overall potential uh, impact it would have would be like fifty billion dollars right. on which the economy. Is, which is also just bad math, by the way, because the <laughs> the housing market is twelve trillion, right? So you have twelve trillion in mortgages. Housing prices go down. I mean, the math isn't that complicated, right? You know, you have housing prices decline twenty something percent on twelve trillion. That is trillions mm-hmm. of mark to market, right? Plus, if you add leverage, and it's like it's just math that they just were assuming wouldn't be interconnected through the system. The main mistakes made last cycle were kind of that and then leverage in, in the CLO market, which is back again now, um, collateralized lending for um, private equity uh, transactions, levered, levered, you know, levered loans, another way of describing that, um, that market, which is which is today, you know, a lot of people are saying kind of the, the, the biggest issue, um, it's, it's 1.4 trillion ish. But it's not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is government debt. It's it's a total obvious fact. It is just not even close to controversial that political risk is off the charts, right? Like it's it's 
it's hard to go a conversation without talking about Donald J, the real Donald J. Trump, right? It's nausea. It really is, and it's like nauseating, and it frustrates the hell out of me because I'm obviously a Bitcoiner, and I'm one of the one of the types. Like, all right, let's just focus on building this new system. I don't even want to hear about the old system because <laughs> I've given up on it. Uh, well, you know, you're a smart guy. So what does that say? Right? What does it say that so many smart people are are giving up on the legacy system? Right. So I think. You know, it's just a fact that political risk is, is completely off the charts. You know, the, the Democrat, I, I call it the red and blue, you know, the, the, the dying red and blue, which is the GOP and the Dems, they've, they've collapsed. Like, they've self-annihilated. Right? How do we make more people realize this, though? It seems like uh, now more than ever you have people calling for more government and the state to come in. And yeah. So it's a natural response. Unfortunately... The self-annihilation. So, so the collapse of the old system is not comfortable, right? So, like systemic risk, it's like a catchphrase. It's a word. It's not comfortable, right? Like 2008 was quite painful. And in 2008, the systemic risk was based on leveraging housing in the U.S. and leveraging the, and, and kind of the, the you know, corporate debt markets. Um, you know, that brought down the system. This time, because it is the entire system, including government debt, that is mispriced, you know, what's, what's, what's likely the case is that this type of collapse will be worse than last time. Um, I think that is what, like Deutsche Bank's kind of like a canary in the coal mine mm-hmm. for what is probably coming in the European financial system. What about the bad bank they're about to spin out? You think that will save them? Well, think about well, think about like just just think about the prices of things today, right? So like, um, right now there there are a lot of people, you know, who are kind of like celebrating that the S and P five hundred quote unquote reached all time highs, you know, or or you know the Dow quote unquote reached all time highs, even though the Dow, by the way, just passed where it was last October. You know, people leave that part out. And S&P's up 2% since January 2018. You know, it's not <laughs> that much higher, right? I thought it would have been up much more percentage-wise. If you listen to the president's tweets, you would think that, right? right? But if you look at the math, it's it's actually up. You exclude dividends, right? At the peak at the end of uh, June was 2% higher than January 26th, 2018, which is kind of interesting. And less than one percent higher from August of 2018. So it's it's, you know, the markets are quote unquote at all time highs, but that is also on the backs of an even bigger negatively yielding credit bubble, even bigger um, leveraged loan bubble, and and now you know threats, uh, you know, and, and kind of what I'll call like um, the president berating the chairman of the Federal Reserve to cut rates, and and you know ECB, ECB saying things that they are going to do which they're legally not allowed to do today what's that negative or negative interest rates not no, legal? This, this is so fascinating so this is this is so in order for so there's a few things that have to be true for a systemic risk to emerge one is there has to be something that's very obvious that later that at the time people kind of ignore at a, at a very large scale and then later it turns out to be obviously a mistake so housing was that the dot com bubble was that this 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 um, cycle is government debt. It's it's like you know how ca- like Brexit like people think a hard Brexit might happen like in October, but somehow 
European government debt is so safe that it's negative. It's it's totally insane, right? And and there's there's so many different reasons why it's insane in Europe. Probably the most obvious way to frame it is so that so in order for these things to the, these mistakes to be perpetuated, there have to be myths, you know. And, and I've heard you guys on this podcast talk about narratives. Myths are narratives, right? And myths can be true myths or they can be false myths. So there's this one very deep myth that I call the myth of the infallible central banks. The myth of the infallible central banks is based on the idea that there's some curtain and behind the curtain there's some magician that is a central bank that will control the whole system and somehow keep it propped up because don't fight the Fed, right? Don't fight the BOJ. Don't fight the ECB. Like, and, and there's certain truth to that in that if you had been assuming that the central banks would fail in their endeavors over the last period of time, you've been wrong, right? In the same way that prior to 08, if you would assume that housing can't go down all at once across the United States, which was kind of the key assumption embedded in credit derivatives, you would have been right prior to 08. So, so today, the myth of the infallible central banks is alluring, right? It's like, oh, wow, they're, they're magicians. They have the ability to print infinite amounts of money and stuff. But the, but the truth is central banks are fallible. Not only are they fallible, meaning they're just people, like I've met some of these people, they're probably very well-intended, you know, but they're oftentimes academics, right, who mm -hmm. haven't even worked in the real world. They are also limited in the United States by law, in, in every single country by politics, and in Europe, literally today. Europe has an issuer limit, that is in the law that says they cannot buy more than 33% of any government bond, any issuer. They cannot buy more than 33% of government of any government's debt. They cannot buy more than 33% of German government debt today. It's just a law. Now, the market, quote unquote, is pricing, quote unquote, meaning the negative yields that are kind of being implied, um, not being implied, but being priced in the European sovereign credit market. Many people have calculated that that pricing implies way more QE than they legally can do today. Not only that, the German Federal Constitutional Court never ruled that QE is legal to begin with. They reviewed it. They said, we're going to pass this to the European Court of Justice. We will not rule on it. We'll defer our ruling until later. On July 30, 30th and 31st of this year, this month, there is going to be a court hearing in Germany to determine whether QE is even legal. Okay, these are just facts, right? So if, if, if a German constitutional court could in, in three weeks say that QE has been illegal, which is possible, I don't know what the rule, we'll find out. There, there are German um, economists and, and business people that are fighting QE, saying it's illegal under German law. If that is the current state of affairs, meaning that there's a German court review pending, the European Central Bank is not only fallible, it is legally restricted in like a very clear way. Not even like theoretical. This isn't stuff I'm like speculating about. These are just facts. Yet people are assuming they can buy bonds forever. They can buy infinity bonds. They can do whatever it is they want to do, but they can't. They can't. There's legal limits. I didn't know that. That's crazy. It's a, it's a fact. No, people don't. People don't talk about it and people don't focus on it because they look at the prices of the government debt. Because, you know, whenever you have negative yields, that means the price is going higher and higher and higher. So bring it back to Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank is 
basically selling $300 billion worth of assets, right, into this quote-unquote bad bank at a peak, right? The government debt markets, credit markets in, in, in Europe and the, and the global markets are, are quote-unquote at peak. They're packaging that stuff up and they're like, get it off our balance sheet, right, while markets are still at peak. But imagine, imagine how bad that situation would be if markets normalize. That's why I think it's just the beginning. Yeah, and going back to like political risk too, you see yesterday they slash 18,000 jobs and the headlines come out earlier this week that executives took the highest bonuses uh, at Deutsche Bank they have ever. Of course. Uh, so this is, so <clears throat> to your, back to your comment about the, like wouldn't it be great if people didn't want socialism for all? Like wouldn't it be great if that wasn't the solution? Of course, it would be great, right? I think it would be better if we could avoid socialism. It doesn't seem like a good, you know, economic system. It hasn't ever worked. You know, look at Venezuela, look at other examples. Um, there aren't really any good examples of socialism working in an economic system. The problem is that <clears throat> we have in our current system socialism for the rich. That is what QE is. QE is free money for the wealthy and for large corporations. And so if you have socialism for the rich, which is what we've had in this, basically the global economy, it's natural that people are going to be upset about that. And this this is actually kind of why Trump won, right, in 2016. Yeah, that's why I can see uh, a dark horse and Andrew Yang winning uh, this time around. <laughs> I do not believe he <laughs> has a real shot. Um, but I do think that people like Senator Warren and Bernie Sanders have a lot of resonance because they're talking about economic populism, which is really what propelled Donald Trump to win in 2016. Now, his policies <clears throat> have probably been more corporatist than populist, um, which is why he's probably vulnerable in the election. Um, we'll see. Um, but the economic populism argument, it's, it's like people say Bernie Sanders is a broken record. It kind of is. He's literally been saying the same thing since 1970. It's just the country has moved in a direction where him saying the same thing is now mainstream because things have gotten so extreme. Right? No, ex yeah. exactly. So the pendulum is swinging. How do I want to describe this? So the pendulum is swinging. Like we have socialism for the rich now at QE and cutting rates. That's obviously the Cantillon effect comes into effect there, uh, which allows the people closest to the spigot of money creation to benefit before inflation goes throughout the economy. And then it's going to... It looks like as if it could potentially swing the other way where you have sort of socialism for all. You had free health care, free schooling, potentially $1,000 right. a month. Right. Um, and I think just that framing, like, I think the world in this country in particular is just stuck in this terrible framing. Like everything's about narratives That's and right. framing and they have to think red versus blue. That's right. And this is why Bitcoin comes into the conversation. Like, do you believe a, a sound money sort of metric system f for money is preferable and could sort of get us out of this framing of socialism for the rich versus socialism for the poor. So I think, um, so, so Bitcoin represents a, a, um, a number of things in the current environment. And so, so one of the, one of the major problems with the legacy system is this dual, this fake kind of, dichotomy of, of the only choice is uh, an elephant or a donkey, right? Like, are you a donkey or are you an elephant? <laughs> like, that's it. Like, one or the other. And, and people, you know, there's like a tribal instinct that kicks in and, you know, people feel like they have to be against the, whatever, the red team. And it's like, it's, it's really, 
silly. Um, it's pretty absurd. You know, and, and then, you know, there's a lot of structural reasons for that in government. And people say, well, you know, it'll never be the case. We won't have Dems and Republicans. I, I don't believe that. So I think there's this like a, a kind of a collapsing, stupid way that our government's been constructed. And I do think that the global digital um, autonomous nature of Bitcoin, meaning, you know, in a way it's kind of borderless. It is, um, you know, it's about the sovereign individual. It's about kind of an alternative to thinking about not only political parties, but even borders and countries um, in a new way. I think there's a way in which Bitcoin kind of stands for some of that. Um, but I would broaden that to say that, you know, I think that, you know, Bitcoin is really part of a broader wave, which is, so one, one of the things I believe is inevitable is transparency. That's why I love this podcast. I love kind of, you know, the various different ways in which information is becoming more accessible. Um, because I think that is just inevitably part of how progress emerges. So, so Bitcoin and kind of other, you know, modernizing forces in the financial system, Bitcoin is, is kind of a little bit more than just the financial system, but it is primarily about money. And so therefore connected to the financial system, these various different forces are part of this, this, this permanent wave of transparency and modernizing finance. And so I do think that, um, you know, the technology of having an immutable, decentralized, um, kind of sovereign individual focused form of money is consistent with a, with a future, um, you know, where transparency and, and kind of, you know, a more open society is present. I think Bitcoin is, is, is kind of built for that in a lot of ways. Um, but I also think it's just one of many things that are happening, right? And Bitcoin's kind of an example that, um, you know, it's also coming back to, to memes and, and myths. You know, it's also a hope. One way that I that I kind of frame Bitcoin is there's there's like a call option on on a future technology, which is really this notion of of kind of Bitcoin as the decentralized network and Bitcoin as this secure immutable thing that you can transact in and maybe even some space in a, in a network like the technology aspect um, but it's also a put option in in, in on, on the fiat system there's a myth around the notion of we need something better than this dying legacy system and people are screaming you know they're 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 rightly very upset about the collapsing old system financial system and so bitcoin also stands for that which is this kind of maybe put option hope that we can have you know a new form of money that is stable no i really like that framing um recently dal dal had a an interview at real vision with ralph paul from real vision and that's where i first heard you uh explain that call option on the tech and put option on the collapse of the fiat system uh, it's focused on the call option right now. That's a little over a decade in. Like, where do you think the tech is? Are you impressed with it, or do you think it's lacking? Are you surprised where it is right now? So I think it's. Um, I think what's been really great about it is, you know, so one of the f one of the facts about the future being transparent is the open source community. Therefore, is part of that future, and the open source nature and kind of decentralized way in which even the technology itself has been developed from the beginning is 
by its nature consistent with progress in my opinion and the way that the community has been resilient through things like fights over block size or whatever the kind of controversy may be in this decentralized way is also really interesting and consistent with the future of how things will be built it's also great that there's no pre-mine and there's no like mooning ico bullshit like um around the the genesis of it because if you do that you pollute it forever you can never come back from that in my opinion and that's one of my uh big beliefs is that bitcoin's quote-unquote immaculate uh conception is is not replicable because there's just too many eyes on the space at this point well, i don't it's very hard to not take the bait of of selling out is another way of saying what you're saying i think it's possible i, I wouldn't say that it's not possible to do things that are pure mm-hmm. right which is, you're saying it's it's very, very hard to not. It's very, very hard to be pure when there's a lot of incentive not to be pure. Meaning consistent with values and build in a way. Well, it's not even be pure, right? It's like it, it may be impossible to be as pure as Bitcoin was because there's so much focus on it. Like, a, like you have VC funds and and, and hedge funds popping up that it's are solely temptations, solely uh, focused on getting as much stake in these these uh, systems as as possible. Uh, at inception and unless you do you think you can ninja launch like a, a bitcoin competitor you and i today right now could launch a new network with no pre-mining in this room we could right there's there's the possibility it is very hard for all sorts of reasons including you know why would you like if you have bitcoin why do you need to create something like bitcoin so i'm not like well great. I, I think there are for for instance in my opinion not to diverge from bitcoin I think we need to build a new kind of social network, right? That yeah, you're, isn't. You were talking about this before we hit record. Let's let's dive into this a little bit. Yeah. Why? So the fundamental the fundamental nature of the way these networks monetize, and the reason why Facebook's a very good business is that that like the legacy advertising business is totally stupid. Like it's fucking dumb. It's built on killing trees. Like you have to kill some trees. Like put put like ink on a piece of paper, and then people pay money for for like human beings to stare at ink on dead trees like that is advertising right or like like sit in their in the in the in a living room in front of a machine and fake like you can't change the channel like the legacy advertising system is so completely dead and broken that something as basic as like a database with your friends and their pictures is like the most profitable advertising business ever right so so it's it's great you know like in some sense that you know that that Facebook and 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 Twitter like have, have you know and I, I have been tweeting for like twelve years and I, I prefer Twitter for many many reasons, um, you know. But 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 it's great that these new networks are kind of like riding this 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 dying advertising trend to create a business model and and you know and so that's that's progress. But that's a fundamental tension between what social networks are about and how they make their money. Meaning. You and I are connected through Twitter because we like to share our ideas, not because we want to look at an advertisement, right? We have, and there's a great community on Twitter around crypto, around Bitcoin, that is genuinely about learning. It's about sharing. It's about collaborating. It has zero to do with staring at advertisements to buy a Volvo, right? You're going to get one, you know, like as you get older in life and we, we reach different milestones in life. We get new kinds of advertisements, right? And so I think that, like, that fundamental tension between the way that 
the business models function today and what the networks are about has to go away. Now, how can we come up with a different structure? Well, one is to say that the users on the network, period, from the beginning, you and I start a social network today and who owns the network? You and I. In our interactions, there's a genesis block. Right now, let's, genesis, let's generate the block. You know, <laughs> I'll quote unquote tweet to you and then your retweet gets a token. Now, the problem with this type of thinking is it usually leads to the mooning and the ICOing and the bullshitting and like we're going to trade it and moon it and make a lot of money from trading it. And so you've got to do things like restrict the trading. You can't convert it. You own it. You own a part of a network that's connected to you in an authentic community where we're sharing and collaborating through values like generosity and through a network that has authentic values and an authentic genesis story, maybe we could build a network that is owned by the, by the community from the beginning. Now, Bitcoin is that in a way, but Bitcoin's about money. It's not really about social network. It's, not intention it's intentionally not about kind of sharing ideas. It wasn't built for that. But I do think it's quite possible that we could build a network that's owned from the beginning by the people with none of the bullshit that's built into, you know, and, and I shouldn't denigrate all ICOs. They're probably not all bad. And, you know, I'm not one to say that like th there's hard problems like how do you bootstrap the tech like can you really rely on the open source network to do that like i kind of think you can get past that now it's pretty easy to build apps like we have these like supercomputers in our pocket like i think there are ways to do things like hashing on the device you know to to have the, the you know the network be be bootstrapped from the beginning there's there's hard issues embedded in this idea uh, but i think it'll happen what do you really think about do. uh federated networks like mastodon or now Gab's master. So I, I really like what they were trying to do. So like I, you know, I, I obviously have kind of, you know, was one of the early experimenters on that network. And like, I, I enjoy the aspiration of what they're trying to do is, I think is great. Um, but coming back to the origin story, like you can't, like, I really think it has to be in the same way that Bitcoin has that, like it was intentionally built from the beginning for what it is. I don't think you can kind of like, in, in the Mastodon did, intentionally from the beginning try to build this decentralized system in a way but it wasn't really it's not owned by the users there's not the incentives aren't built in a way to encourage the right type of behavior on the network like there's certain hard things that you have to get right at the beginning um, I admire very much what they've been trying to do and I hope they succeed at it but I think you kind of have to you know it, it has to be done and also the user experience has to be beautiful for consumer facing apps. Like it's, it, there's so many hard things built into this idea, but it's, it's possible. Yeah. And the, uh, the mental switching cost of going from like a quote unquote free internet, which people think it's free, but the, the, the price you pay is abstracted and data that gets sold on the back end. going from that to something where you pay for content or pay to interact with content. I think about this a lot too. Like, is it, is it too much of a mental switch of, too much of a switching cost at this point uh, to become a reality. Like, so it, it it again. It just depends on it depends on you know. So like the open source community today, and, and including some very public people that are part of Bitcoin, they did it. They didn't do it for the money. They didn't do it for the Bitcoin money from the beginning, right? And there there are some you know famous community members to this day they do it because they believe in the open source nature of what it is about period i think laszlo is a great example of that there are many right mm -hmm. and, and and there are many we don't even know mm -hmm. because their their github is like maybe they don't even like attach it to their identity because they genuinely don't care right and i think that twitter the reason i like twitter and the reason why you and i connect on twitter and there are other people 
a lot of really great people who are, who are on Twitter is there's that same generous intent, right? Which is like, let's share ideas, let's be in this together. And it's really not about the money. It's about let's, let's kind of live these values and be in this, this world together. So that, that kind of open source, e or open source e ethos that is present in the software community today, it's already present in many different kinds of technologies, including Bitcoin, along with the kind of generous and open source nature um, you know, of Twitter in the, in the sense of how the interactions exist, to me, kind of point in the direction of what social networking will be you know, in five or 10 years from now, meaning it'll be supported by an open source community. That community will probably own the network. The users will own the network. We don't need to have advertising. And there's, there's cool stuff like cent.co, C-E-N-T.co. They're doing some cool stuff where it's like, you know, around, it's kind of like a Reddit where you vote up ideas, but you, you pay a little bit of ETH or something. I, I don't think those are the right solutions, but those are kind of gesturing in the direction towards what I think, you know, where we'll, where we'll end up, which is, you know, a, a more, more pure and, and user-owned social network. We'll see. Yeah, but we shall see. There's one... Uh quote-unquote third layer solution that I've I've read about and had explained to me which is the fabric protocol which uses the lightning network as like a uh, a mechanism through which to to incentivize value transfer when you're transferring messages as well so you get uh, paid a little bit satoshis for transferring data on a network whether it be a social network or yeah. just and, uh, and sort of like a BitTorrent like system and that's cool and so so like bring you back to Bitcoin like I think that I'll put that in the bucket of kind of quote unquote tech and quote unquote medium exchange, medium of exchange built on top of like store of value, mm -hmm. right? And, and I think that like Bitcoin doesn't have to be everything, you know, in my opinion. And, and I think it's cool. It's great. I love the experiment. So cool. If it happens, great, you know, and if Lightning Network becomes like a really functional medium, medium of exchange on top of the store of value, great. I think there are these kind of potentialities. Um, you know, built on top of, of Bitcoin. But I think there's other ways to do things. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be about Bitcoin, you know, yeah. and I think we can have alternatives that, that aren't, that aren't shit coins, right? It's not a mooning, like, like speculative fraud situation that's trying to like get rich quick and, and like, like lie and, and like do illegal things. And there's all sorts of problems with alternatives to Bitcoin. Um, so I'm not saying it's easy, but I do think there are, there will be continue to be new innovations, right? Because this is alien technology, and <laughs> it's trying trying to figure out how to work within it and the limits uh, that exist within these networks and protocols. And then, I think going back to what we were discussing earlier, creating incentive systems. I think that's what Satoshi did beautifully with Bitcoin: is create a perfect incentive system in my mind between stakeholders, developers, miners, uh, full node operators, whatever, like every actor within the system, and that's what I question a lot. That's why I'm inherently very skeptical of anything else because it's a beautiful incentive system that was designed and can you replicate that and with, with different factors and different variables? I mean, it's just, I think it's a fact that you can. It's just like, I think that, like, how many incentive systems do we need to create, like, a good store of value? I don't know. Maybe one. Maybe, maybe we need one and maybe Bitcoin's it. You know, I, I don't know that we need to kind of recreate a beautiful wheel if it turns out to be the case that Bitcoin, it looks like it's actually gaining institutional adoption, which is a huge, important test over the next couple of years. 
um, for the store of value component. Let's see, like, if I'm right about systemic collapse, how does Bitcoin fare in that? I, you know, I don't know. Like, there's going to be some real tests. But the, it's not the only challenge in the world. Like, like, I think that there are many other, like, incentive systems that we can create to do other things, like interact in a social network. Like, why, you know, or, like, new media models. Like, it's cool. I love the Civic guys are trying to do new things. Guys and girls, you know, shouldn't be gender. But there's, like, there's people trying to use incentives. And even... I know people don't like basic attention token. I think it's super interesting. They're trying to disrupt the, the media industry by using incentives. Like, I don't know if it'll work or not, but I, I think that there's so many legacy industries that are just so bad and broken um, that, you know, the, the not, not to mimic or copy what Satoshi did with Bitcoin, um, but just the notion that we can create new incentive systems and build things in a decentralized way, I think it's it's just a fact. So I think we'll see more of that. Yeah. And as we've been alluding to, it might be necessary to the the collapse of the legacy system does come to fruition. Let's yeah. let's focus. Let's move this focus to the collapse. Like, is there a way for it to be orderly? Does it need to be painful? What does it look like? So unfortunately, like I think that I'm I'm you know I'm I'm. I'm reminded of this book, Anti-Fragile, by Nassim Taleb. A lot of people probably have read that, um, you know, I see you have here in the studio. And, you know, I think that, um, unfortunately, you know, I think there was probably a window in 2016 when, you know, th there's normal cycles and the credit cycle is a, a very important cycle in the financial markets. And there was probably a window in that time frame when, you know, the, the quote unquote powers that be could have an enabled a proper credit cycle to happen. Um, but instead, what they did is is they they tried to prevent um, the cycle from turning. And that, that's when the ECB went negative. That's when they started buying bonds. That's when um, the Fed paused. China did the, this kind of giant um, monetary stimulus. BOJ went to zero all the way out to 10 years. And so I think what, what happened was what would have been potentially a, a relatively orderly cycle was transmuted into a systemic cycle. Like, I don't think, given the scale and the interconnected nature of what's going on right now in the financial markets, it seems quite unlikely that this can be orderly because it's kind of been pushed to such, a, such extremes. The prices of things are at such extreme levels. There's this very simple notion in credit markets that has to do with what's called duration so duration simply means the sensitivity of a bond or credit instrument to interest rates the higher the duration the more sensitive it is to move in interest rates right now duration is at peak it's above eight meaning a one percent move in interest rates is an eight percent move in the price of bonds mm -hmm. Government debt right now is a 50 trillion, roughly 50 trillion dollar market. And let's say that it's mispriced, I don't know, by two, three percent. All of a sudden you're, you're talking about, let's say it was three percent and eight, eight, the duration of eight. All of a sudden you're talking about a 24 percent move if interest rates were to normalize. A 24 percent move in a 50 trillion dollar market that is literally the most connected market the entire planet it's on every single bank's balance sheets because basel three in europe literally made it the law that you don't have to have equity reserved against government debt and so the system has you know in a way through the way it's been constructed 
in the resistance to for kind of volatility, the you know the resistance to fragility. What what it's done is it's made it like extremely dangerous. Like it's so asymmetric. Like a two to three percent interest rate move would collapse literally the entire financial system. If if if, if the European government debt market were to move three percent, we would like the banks would stop working in the United States in in a week. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's just a fact. And it's not even like that's not people. The, the reason why people so. If interest rates move 3% in Europe, the, the banking system in the United States would collapse and, and banks might stop working. True statement. Counter-argument. But don't worry. Myth of the infallible central bank. There's no way that interest rates can move 3%. That's the counter-argument, right? There's no way. That's the counter-argument. They'll come in. <coughs> They'll come in and They'll fix it. They'll save the day. The magicians behind the curtain. They, quote-unquote, know. They, quote-unquote, have a plan. So the conspiracy theorists are kind of like in cahoots with the mainstream like asset managers and like the, the people who worship the myth of passive magic, like the people who kind of like take the current system as, you know, stable, that the conspiracy theorists believe there's some secret conspiracy, you know, I don't know who it is, pick your favorite group that you want to denigrate and they're behind the scenes manipulating the whole thing and they have a plan. And the plan is they're gonna collapse it and then re you know, reinstate it and does, like that's the Bilderberg Council, whatever. Pick, pick, pick your favorite <laughs> theory, right? Like that's complete and total bullshit, right? Like, it's like there's no there's no one behind the curtain. Yeah, Occam's Razor comes into play. Right. It's, it's just it's impossible. A, it's right. incredibly. I think you said this on on your in your conversation with Dan Hell. Like the math, or maybe he said it. The math of of kind of modeling the entire economic system is just it's truly impossible, right? Yeah. To, to be able to control a system as complex as our global economy. So the conspiracy theorists are totally full of shit. But what's crazy is that like. The entire financial market is right now predicated upon this myth or this faith that there's someone who can control it and keep it contained. It's baffling because it's been proven that they cannot. Like if you go back and read the Fed minutes, you can clearly tell that what they were predicting. Literally. You just look at GDP predictions like a few quarters out and they've been consistently wrong. The Medusa charts that we that we mentioned um, yeah. on this podcast before like it, it, it has been proven with hard data that they actually do not have any idea what they're doing. Mm. And that's like, that's what worries me like about systemic collapse. Like how bad will it get? Like no. And that's, I I don't want to say I'm like pessimistic, but it's just like, I got to stop saying like, um, it's, we live in a world. I feel like everybody's distracted. Everybody's, we live in a world of conspicuous consumption where you're either watching Bravo you're out drinking, you're, you're partying, and nobody focuses on these, these, these problems which will affect everybody on the world. And yeah. it's, it's hard for me to see like a world without chaos in which this financial system collapses and how chaotic will it get? Yeah, it, it's... Cause here's, 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 here's something that... Some of these things are just so staggering when you think about it. Some of the smarter people that I know, quote unquote, in the sense of they're very accomplished in the legacy financial system, they're very intelligent. Their baseline consensus theory today, this is kind of mainstream, I would say, probably consensus today, is that Donald Trump will either collapse the markets and then reinflate them just in time to win the election, 
or somehow keep them propped up so that he can win the election in 2020. This is kind of what the consensus on Wall Street is today, which is completely and totally absurd and insane. If I'd said to you in 2015 or 2013, 2014, the real Donald J. Trump is going to be president of the United States and the mainstream thesis on Wall Street is going to be that he's going to tweet threats against China and then not tweet them at the right time and avoid war with Iran and keep everything magically contained through his Twitter account to manipulate the stock market up and down just in time for him to win the 2020 election, you would say that's insane because it's totally, completely crazy. But that is our current world, right? We are in such an extreme state of political risk. We've just become numb to it. Right. And so like it's it's kind of I think there's a way in which it's like the frog boiling. Yeah. You know, where there's an incremental like at first, you know, whenever we you know okay, the Russians hacked our election, that's that's probably pretty bad. You know, that the, like there's a lot of violent rhetoric on Twitter. That's probably pretty bad. There's tariffs there's probably pretty bad. There's potential war with Iran. There's probably pretty bad. It's like the sovereign credit markets at 10 trillion in the stock markets at peak and the PMIs are globally rolling over We're in recession in Germany and France and Italy and China's economy is rolling over in the Hong Kong real estate like there's riots in Hong Kong and France it's like it's it's kind of bad like and you, you just add them up cumulatively and it's not like we literally learned in 2008 that systemic risk isn't a theory it's an actual fact right it was like 2008 before that time, you know, it was like maybe, you know, we probably didn't in our lifetimes, in even our grandparents or parents' life, post-World War II, let's leave World War II out of it, Great Depression, out of it. Post-World War II, there hadn't really been systemic risk. You know, there had been some cycles and stuff. And so maybe before 08, we didn't know systemic risk was a thing. 2008, fact, proven. Systemic risk exists. How do you get it? Well, if you have big credit bubbles, then you could have systemic risk, especially if it's interconnected through the whole system and through the banking system. Okay, today, we've got gigantic, bigger credit bubbles. The leveraged loan market and the sovereign credit market are way bigger, way more interconnected, and way more mispriced than ever the housing market was in 2008. Not to mention all the other risks that are greater today. So it's, it's I think part of it is like the, to your point, most people are happy. You know, they're in their stupor, quote unquote happy. You know, they're not paying attention. Um, there's another really pernicious and deep uh, and, and probably dangerous, maybe, maybe most dangerous myth is the myth of passive magic. The myth of passive magic is the myth that passive investing is magical and you just buy Vanguard and then magic happens and mm -hmm. it goes up and up and up and up for forever and ever. And it's like, of course it's better to pay Vanguard zero than to overpay for things that lose money. That's just true. And so there's some truth to the myth of pass passive magic that passive investing is probably better than active investing on, on balance, but the myth is that passive investing is magical and will go up forever and ever and ever. So people, especially after 10 years of the markets going up, you know, they look at their like 10 year performance and their five year performance. They're like, oh, this is great. My Vanguard is, is it's amazing. It's, it's magical. My magic box is working. And so they don't, they don't really care to kind of question this, you know, the, the things that we're talking about. Well, isn't it funny that they don't question it? And then, oh yeah, but if you look at like the slow, effects of this over the last couple of generations in particular where uh, the family in the U.S. was able to live off one income and then 
the, the person providing that income had to go get two jobs and then the other person in that household had to enter the job market as well and now yeah. they're both in the job market and everybody's struggling living paycheck to paycheck most people are and so, so there's a book about that and the book is called the two income trap and i was a research assistant and teaching assistant for this professor at harvard law school named professor warren who wrote that book mm-hmm. and so her entire life was dedicated in her career to 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 this issue which is kind of the consumer finance and the hollowing out of the middle class um so now senator warren is running her campaign based on notions like this right that the, the, this is the economic populism argument, right? The middle class has been crushed. The the wealthy have benefited, but but most people are, are living on kind of a similar wage to what they made 20, 30 years ago, roughly speaking. They haven't participated in the bubble. And to your point, there's like a two-income um, trap that, that most families have fallen into. And so I think that that understandable frustration of the, the, the average person is what... what you know, it, it fuels this global populist backlash, right? It's not just the United States. It started with Greece, and then we had Brexit, and then Italy right now is run by a combination of the Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump party, like, and, and the Donald Trump party, like, which is right of Donald Trump, um, is is pulling ahead. Are they the Black Star? Um, the Five Star Movement. Five Star, yeah. That's what it is, yeah. Um, is, is on the left. They're the, they're the, they were started by a comedian, super interesting. Uh, that's right, that's yeah. right. Um, but they, they're actually the number two party. And um, Salvini on the right, which is Lega, uh, is leading now. And Salvini, he's, he's a little, he's kind of right of Bannon. Like, he's a little troubling in terms of some of the nationalism and, and anti-immigrant stuff that he says. You know, maybe he says it for political reasons. Um, but that's the number one party. But those two combined run Italy right now. So that's populism. And then obviously in the United States, we've got, you know, Donald Trump, who's not a Republican. The guy you know, was a lifelong Democrat. He, he apparently, his, him and his daughter both donated to Kamala Harris in 2013. So that fact come out, it's been already publicized. Um, you know, so lifelong Democrat, now Republican, beats all the Republicans and Democrats in 2016 because of economic populism. And now you've got, you know, the establishment Democrats are, are, in my opinion, done. Like, there's no way that Biden, in my opinion, has a chance to You're win. so out of touch. Yeah. On both sides, though, everybody's out of touch. Well, I think it's the establishment, right? And if we think about what does the collapse of the establishment mean, it means that the establishment, in a way we can think about it in the context of, like, innovation, right? And think about it in the context of, like, old media is a great example, but many different industries. The old media industry, it's really crazy, right, that the old media industry is continuing kind of like the cable bundle. Like, how did that last so long? (laughs) <laughs> it still exists. People are like paying for a quote-unquote bundle of cable. Like, what is, like, how does that exist, right? And the reason is, if you have the establishment kind of legacy powers that be, and this is legacy Wall Street, this is kind of legacy media, legacy powers. Pull that out from under your leg. Like, it's yeah. a distortion there. I'm sorry the, about that. No, it's okay. The legacy powers that be, I think, you know, have every incentive to continue to maintain the system the way it is because it works for them. And... I think that's what people were so surprised in 2016 when, you know, Hillary Clinton lost because pe- people thought it was, quote unquote, her turn. Right. She's the establishment chosen candidate. Like, how could it possibly be that this reality TV guy with no re- no political experience could beat her? And the reason is because people were fed up with the establishment. That's why she lost. Right. And people, yeah. 
some hacking and hacking is very, very bad. And of course, from a national security perspective, like we need to take care of that. So I don't want to diminish the uh, attacks on our country, which is very serious. But that's not why she lost. Like she lost. She should have. It shouldn't have even been close. Right. She lost because she's the establishment and people are against the establishment on both sides. Um, and I think it comes back to a lot of what we're talking about with regard to the, you know, the system. I mean, like if you keep the system propped up and you keep inflating it, inflating it, inflating it, what's going to happen? The wealthy will get wealthier and wealthier and wealthier and wealthier and wealth inequality will go up and up and up and up and up to the point where now it's at peak. You've got peak wealth inequality. And the rest of the people in the country who've like lost their jobs, let's, let's kind of either blame globalization and China beating us strategically or blame tech or both. So you've got like a ton of people who are unhappy because they don't have a job and they're fighting this two income trap and maybe they've got addiction, you know, in their families because they've got either veterans who've come home and, and have mental health issues that aren't being addressed or they've got, um, you know, addictions uh, based on just, you know, being addicted to, to other kinds of uh, drugs or painkillers or whatever. So you've got like real malaise in, 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 in the middle of the country while the top of the country is celebrating. So it's. You know, I think it's understandable why there's this backlash. Um, but it's all part of cycles, man. On the other side of it, progress is inevitable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> progress is inevitable. So what, is, uh, what does it look like when the system collapses and the ashes, the dust is settling? What does a restructuring of a, of a new system or a structuring of a new system look like? So does the legacy completely die off? Well, or? So I think... Um, I think it depends. And I think that, you know, I'll say what I, what I pray. I pray that we can avoid war. Like I really pray Me too. that we can avoid war. Um, I'm concerned about some of the things lately between, you know, the stuff going on in the Middle East and the, and, and the conflicts in the South China Sea. And now, you know, the, the military industrial complex, like, you know, for, it's probably the most powerful of the legacy systems. Um, and there's all sorts of kind of like, you know, we don't want Iran to have nuclear weapons. It's, it's probably important they don't. So, you know, in, in China's aspirations, South China Sea are really strategically dangerous. And so I don't, I don't want to diminish the military threats. I, don't, I, don't, I think it's important for the U.S. to remain strong militarily. So I don't, I don't kind of think it's easy to avoid military conflict. I hope we can. So I pray that we can avoid it. I think most likely, you know, and Deutsche Bank is further confirmation of this this likely scenario is that, you know, things in Europe really break down. The financial system seizes up in a way. It's kind of like an inverse Lehman situation where the European financial system seizes up. That causes our Europe, our financial system to seize up. Depending on how bad it gets, if they lose control, like in a violent way, meaning if, let's say, the German Constitutional Court rules QE's illegal or something like that, where there's a quick breaking point um you know maybe maybe banks could get shut down you know in the u.s i think if that's happening during an election year which is possible that it happens during an election year maybe there's like the antifa stuff gets more violent and then you get some violence on the right like you get some kind of political unrest if the banks are shut down people might panic a little bit you know markets could be down significantly more than they you know have been in the last period of years on the order of what what happened in 08 um so i think it could be very bad um you know, maybe maybe some some, you know, bank closures, markets collapsing, political unrest. I'm hopeful that. You know, what will happen in that environment is that we'll be able to find some unity, you know, in our common values and 
you know, that leaders will emerge to remind us of that and, and kind of beyond this red and blue bullshit and that the, the majority of people I think are good. I think the majority of people, you know, recognize that this red and blue bullshit is noise and, and will kind of see the violence of Antifa and, and whatever's happening on the right. If, if, if the sort of scenario I'm talking about materializes, we'll see that as, as beneath them. Um, I'm hopeful we can have, you know, some unity in, in, in common values. We can kind of avoid MMT, avoid the extreme, you know, like helicopter money scenarios, which is bailing out the old system. Let, let the markets collapse. I think it's fine. I mean, let, let companies fail. Let's have, let's have the old, old companies go. That's fine. I think it's great. You know, if we, we could kind of, then, then we'd have, you know, I think a, a resurgence in entrepreneurship. You know, I'm, I'm actually very optimistic about, you know, ingenuity in the American economy. I think that startup formation has been down because of the, the, the kind of, we've left out a little bit, the political consolidation in the sense of like industries have been so ingrained in government that they've been able to create oligopolies across pretty much every industry. But let them fail. I, I think it would be good. I think it would be healthy. And so I'm hopeful we could have kind of like a, you know, market collapse deep, you know, maybe deeper than 08, you know, maybe some political unrest that would avoid violence. Maybe, unfortunately, it'd probably be some violence, kind of like what's been happening already in Oregon. Um, you know, I, I, I'm hopeful that the new system will be, and we're seeing glimmers of it. I mean, Bitcoin is one example of, of the new system being architected, but there's, there's a lot of innovation continuing to happen. Um, and so I'm hopeful that, you know, if the old, old system's failing in, in, in a kind of a healthy way with, with some, you know, discomfort, it won't be comfortable to lose trillions and trillions and trillions of, of, of quote unquote money in the old system and, and have, you know, many, many jobs lost in things. I'm not, I don't, I don't want to diminish, you know, the, the discomfort of 08. And, and if it happens again, how that could be uncomfortable. But I'm optimistic that, you know, we can come together on our, on our common values. I, I believe in American values. And, and I think that, you know, we can have growth again. We can have innovation. We can have new, you know, why can't we build new systems? Why can't we build new cities, you know, more purpose-built for the modern era? Why can't we have, you know, like we were talking about social networks, but there's many other industries. Why can't we have decentralized media companies, right? Like, why can't we have, uh, we should have true news. We'll have true news, right? We'll get through, we'll figure out this fake news stuff. We'll... I think maybe we could have some innovation beyond the iPhone again. How cool would that be? Right. <laughs> right. Some hardware innovation. Like this, there's going to be good stuff yeah. you know, on the other side. So. Well, that's what, uh, that's what sort of drives me towards Bitcoin is it's like, like I was telling you before, um, we hit record. Like I worked at a managed futures fund and was tasked with following the Fed and all this. And I just got really jaded by like, these people have no idea what's going on. Like they're just going to keep feeding money. Markets are going to keep going up, but it's all bullshit. I got really jaded, like really pessimistic, and luckily found Bitcoin at the same time. And Bitcoin is one of many common missions that exist that I think could make the world better. And, and finding a common mission post-collapse is, like you said, it could lead to more ingenuity. People being like, oh, we fucked up so. really bad. Like, yeah. we, we should fix this. I think that's a great way. I, the word shared mission is a way to describe that. And I, I think it's a great way to think about it, that with a shared mission and shared values... I think that we can architect the future and that's, I believe that deeply. I think every single company in the future must be mission driven and have values based culture it will not exist. And I think Bitcoin, the community around it, the way it's been built, um, related kind of decentralized companies and technologies, but all sorts of 
companies are being founded in that ethos today. I think Generation Z gets it. I really, I don't think Generation Z will ever work for your company if you're not mission driven. Like in, the millennials will quit. You know, that's just I, the fact. I'm an example of that I've quit many jobs right? in the last decade because right? I did not believe with uh, what was going on. That's why we're going to build the future together, man. And that's why we're yeah. here having this conversation. I think it's, I'm very grateful that you invited me and, um, you know, I appreciate the work you're doing, sharing, you know, sharing this wisdom with the community like this. I think it's really, uh, meaningful that you spend your time doing this. Thank you. And I, um, it's a labor of love and I appreciate you, uh, coming by the studio on this random Tuesday. What is it? Tuesday? It's Tuesday <laughs> on this random Tuesday. It's been a great conversation. Um, is there any like parting notes or anything you want to end it on here? I mean, we've been pretty, uh, pretty optimistic here at the end. Yeah. You know, I think that, um, I think that one of the things that like maybe one of the worst, I'll kind of like, I'll lecture a little bit. I'll lecture the, the, the Bitcoin community a little bit because I like to troll. So I'll, I'll the Bitcoin troll what? <laughs> the, the Bitcoin community. I'll lecture those listeners out there today um, and friends of mine who you know who I'm talking about. The intraday trading of the thing and the short-term kind of financial motivation of the, you know, the up, up 10, down 10 kind of price movement of the thing um, I think it's super fun and I, I admire the folks that are doing it. I think it's, it's, it's really a direction towards like what the future of finance will be in that it's an open source kind of, you know, development of and collaborative, you know, learning about things like technical analysis and risk management and things that, um, you know, that's happening in the trading of, of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. But I think one of the key problems with the old system is the, myo the myopia and the, and the kind of short-termism and the greed and the, you know, I'll call it like a selfish nature of the legacy finance system. And so I, I think it's important that the long-term stay in focus. And that's what the HODLer is about. That's like really what kind of the 10-year story and the 15-year story of Bitcoin is about. And, and kind of the you know the hope for the quote-unquote shit coins you know the hope for new innovations that aren't about flipping and mooning and making you know a, a short-term profit so you know a short a short not piece of advice but suggestion that well it's great to trade and make money in the short term i think it's it's it's, it's, it's a lot of really talented people doing that and, and, and like i said i think it's great the learning that's happening especially about things like how trading works and, and technical analysis, all these things. There's many positive aspects of the short-term stuff that's happening. But I hope folks don't become like the old system and don't become myopic and don't become selfish and short-term and, and kind of, um, you know, greedily focused in, in the architecting of the new system. I hope we can have some, you know, real mission orientation and long-term focus in the way things are built. And I know there's great work being done in that way. Um, so that's that's my hope. My hope is that as we build the new system together, that we can build it in a way that's consistent with values and a mission that we want want to have emerge in the long run. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I'm uh, one who believes we need to adopt more of the seven generation thinking that the Iroquois Nation had, and Bitcoin provides that opportunity. Right? Uh, 
It's awesome. I can't wait to hear more about the seventh generation Iroquois. You act thinking of the seventh generation ahead of you. Um, how How will your actions today affect them? It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And I never heard that one. You know, I'm sure I have, and then I forgot it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, thank you for coming through. It's been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much. Let's get on with your afternoon here. Peace and love, freaks.